Well, if you've been with us uh, of late, you'll know we're doing a teaching series on the book of Acts. Um, we find ourselves in the book of Acts once again this morning, and we're in Acts chapter 12. And we've only got five verses uh, to go through this morning. So if you have a Bible, um, bring that one out, or you can grab a Bible from up the back. Today we are reading verses 20 through 24 in Acts chapter 12. This is what Luke has written for us. It said, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So Alice and I have been married for just over six months now, and uh, we're learning plenty of different things this year. It's been a big year of change, and one of the things we're learning to do is learn how to select a movie to watch together. Um, Please pray for us. This is something we haven't quite mastered yet. Sounds like uh, people relate. So one of the things that is often uh, thrown my way, I'm often accused of not ever watching a chick flick. Now, my rebuttal to this accusation is that I believe I have. I've watched the movie The Bodyguard with you. Surely that counts as a chick flick. But her reply is that it's not in fact a chick flick. It's as much an action film as it is a chick flick. So apparently that one doesn't count. But... One of, the, one of the categories of movies, one of the genres that we're actually finding a little bit of uh, common ground to enjoy a film together is uh, Pixie, uh, Pixar and Disney, um, not Pixie films, Pixar and Disney films. And one of the ones we watched recently was Beauty and the Beast, the 1991 Disney classic. Yes, I'm free enough in Christ to say I still like that movie. Uh, and there's um, a couple of characters I really love in that movie. There's uh, Cogsworth and Lumiere. They've just got the most incredible interplay. I still find them quite hilarious. They're like the Disney equivalent of Hamish and Andy. I think they're really funny. <laughs> but there's one particular character in this movie who really rubs me up the wrong way, and I think you might be know who I'm talking about. His name is Gaston. We all know who that fella is? Yeah. Now, there's one particular scene in this movie, although it kind of carries on as a theme throughout the whole movie, but there's one particular scene that really just encapsulates his depravity. He's sitting there in a bar, feeling uh, quite upset, and, you know, had a bit of a, a down day, and one of his friends comes up to him and starts to try and cheer him up. He's like, gosh, it disturbs me to see you, Gaston, looking so down in the dumps. And then it's not just one friend that kind of gets in on this cheering up act, it's everyone gets in on the act. Like the whole bar just starts singing about all the glorious qualities that Gaston has. They start singing, No one's slick as Gaston, no one's quick as Gaston, no one's neck is incredibly thick as Gaston. And they just keep going, For there's no man in town half as manly, perfect a pure paragon. And they're doing this for ages, it's quite a long scene. Now, I think if, if most of us were in that situation, we'd probably be going, hey, come on, fellas, um, I'm having a rough day. I appreciate you like a few things about me, but can you keep it down? I, I think that's probably how we would respond, right? But what does Gaston do? He's like, you know what? You, you guys are onto something. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually a pretty big deal. And he starts singing along, as a specimen, yes, I'm intimidating. I use antlers in all of my decorating. 
and he just joins in on this glory song to himself. Now, not exactly the kind of guy we want to be mates with, right? Um, might just be a tad full of himself, just, just a little. But in Acts chapter 12, we're, we're going to encounter such a man, a Gaston type character, and his name is Herod Agrippa I. We actually encountered him last week, and, and Pete said it right, he's, he's a guy who uh, really personifies that age-old saying, he runs with the foxes and, and hunts with the hounds. He's just your quintessential people pleaser. But what we're also going to learn about him today is that he's a man who's just utterly obsessed with himself. He's riddled with pride. And so we see there in verse 20 that the story kicks off and it says that Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So Tyre and Sidon were coastal cities that were, uh, existed north of Galilee where uh, Herod would have been situated in a region called Phoenicia. Now, we don't know exactly why he was angry with them, but basically the people of Tyre and Sidon had sort of bitten the hand that fed them, as the old saying goes. There was a long-standing trade line that had been going on for centuries. The people of Tyre and Sidon really depended on Herod for the corn and grain supplies that would be sent north, and they've really annoyed him. And so Herod is at least threatening to cut off this long-standing supply of food, uh, which would be absolutely devastating for the people of Tyre and Sidon. So what they do, they kind of gather together and they, they even uh, uh, grab Blastus onto their team. They've they got to get someone on the inside, be like, hey, we're going to do everything we can to make sure Herod doesn't cut off our trade line. Blastus, please come and help us. We're, we're in a bit of a pickle here. And so what they do, they rally together in a place called Caesarea, which is another coastal town, sort of as a, a middle ground between the, the two regions. And when they meet there, what uh, Herod decides to do, he's going to put on something of a festival. Uh, he's going to put on a series of shows to kind of entertain these envoys that have come down from Tyre and Sidon as a means of uh, entertaining them before they have what would likely be a pretty heated discussion about the continuing of the trade line. But then as we read on, it says that um, Herod, when he rocked up to this festival, he didn't exactly come underdressed. It says he put on his royal robes. Now, we, we kind of read that and go, well, he's a king, he's wearing robes, so what? But what we actually have in history is the account of a man named Josephus, and he's a really reliable historian who tells us about the first century and actually helps us interpret the Bible. And Josephus, when he describes this account, he tells us a little bit about these robes that Luke doesn't quite catch on to. He says, these robes were actually made of pure silver, and they were really finely knit. And what happened was, is that as the sun rose early on that particular morning during the festival when he's trying to entertain all these envoys, you've got the sun rising up, he's wearing a coat made of pure silver and so it's going to start glistening and he has this radiance on him and the people stand back and go, my goodness, look at the splendor of this man. And you, you hear what they say, they said, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now what does Herod do in response to that? He's wearing his beautiful silver robe and people are calling him a god what does he do nothing absolutely nothing you see typically what we see in the scriptures is whenever someone starts bowing down to you starts praising you to be god when you are not in fact god generally the person who's being worshipped tells you to stop they're like please cut it out I, i'm one like you don't do that what's herod doing no, keep it coming. I think you're onto something here. He's doing the Gaston thing. You see, if you look in uh, Acts chapter 14, verses uh, 11 through 15, have a look at how Paul and Barnabas respond uh, when they get worshipped at one point. 
It says, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying to, in Lycianaean, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. That is the normal response. But Herod, no such opposition. By his silence, he is actually saying something. He is shouting something really, really loud. You guys are onto something. I am no mere man. I'm more like a god. So his silence here tells us a lot about where his heart's at. Can you, can you, see, the, um, can you see the insanity here? This is where Herod Agrippa is at. And yet, having said all that, the closer I peer into Herod Agrippa's heart here in Acts chapter 12, the more I realize this is just a mirror. You see, I see a lot of myself in Herod Agrippa. John Calvin put it this way. He said, There is indeed nothing that man's nature seeks more eagerly than to be flattered. Accordingly, when his nature becomes aware that his gifts are highly esteemed, it tends to be unduly, he tends to be unduly credulous about them. Nothing pleases man more than the sort of alluring talk that tickles the pride that itches in his very marrow. You see, what we see in Herod Agrippa is not some unique situation. This is actually just a snapshot of the human condition, right? Our condition is what one author called idolatrous self-glorification, or in other words, pride. You see, idolatrous pride is really just the sin behind every other sin. It's the sin that made an angel named Lucifer become a demon named Satan. And it's also the sin that resulted in the fall. You can see it there in Genesis chapter 3. Look, look at how Satan allures Adam and Eve in the garden. You can read it in uh, Genesis 3.5. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You see, what we see in Herod is really the first sin that Adam and Eve committed. <laughs> you see, what took place in the, in the garden there, it's not just that Adam and Eve indulged in some exotic fruit. <laughs> now, what we see in the garden is nothing shy of treason. As, as one theologian put it, this is the de-guarding of God. These are creatures who are denying their creatureliness. You see, you and I were actually made not to be gods unto ourselves, but we're actually designed, we are created to live in joyful submission to God the Father. And so, in the same way that a fish thrives in water, you and I thrive in union with God. There is a joyful dependence that comes with being united to God Almighty. But ever since the fall, we've been carrying on like Herod Agrippa. Stealing glory, glory theft, glory that belongs to God, we try and take for ourselves. And this is insane. Now, at this point, we might want to push back a little bit and go, okay, Jaden, you got me. All right, I'm a little proud from time to time. But look, I don't have that whole coat of pure silver thing. I really wouldn't do the Gaston in the bar thing. I'm not that proud. Yeah, okay, maybe you're not, but... How else does pride manifest itself? You see, like Herod's silence here, pride is actually often a silent sin. We do it in lots of ways. Checking and counting our likes on Facebook. What are we doing in that moment? Well, we're asking for worship. 
prayerlessness even, depending on ourselves and not God? What about um, failing to diffuse undue compliments? We just wear them like a coat. See, pride manifests in all sorts of ways. Uh, Ian Jugwood put it this way. He said, this is exactly what pride does. It locates the self at the center of the universe, glorying in its own achievements and putting everyone else in second place. Its eyes are always directed sideways and downwards, comparing ourselves with others and endlessly trying to outdo them. In its very nature, pride has to be cleverer than someone else or more attractive than other people or a better cook or a faster runner or a more skillful gardener or whatever. Pride is never satisfied in what has been accomplished because its essence always lies in defeating others, not in achieving the thing itself. The eyes of pride are thus always fixed on myself and my performance in a way that leaves no room for looking upward to God. Do you resonate with any of that? You see, regrettably, I do. Um, We have um, only a small place. We've got two bedrooms in in our um, house apartment. And we've got our bedroom and then we've also got the office. Now, in that office, this is kind of the, um, the room of pride for me. Um, I have a couple of degrees hanging from the wall. Bachelor of Sports Science, Jaden O'Donnell. Doctor of Physiotherapy, Jaden O'Donnell. And then over on this side, I've got all these books laid out by a lot of really intelligent old dead theologians. <laughs> now, some days I-, I get it right, I think, and I can come into that room and go hey, Jesus, thank you for granting me an incredible education. Thank you for the opportunity you've given me to learn. I pray that I can be faithful in sharing whatever knowledge I have. So sometimes that happens, but let me tell you how it happens other times. Sometimes I take people through the house, and I'm like, shall I show you the office now? (laughs) And I stand there, and uh, you know what goes on in my heart sometimes? I wonder if they've noticed the books. (laughs) Did they... uh, Did I catch the title doctor there? This is the insanity of pride. It's in me. And I bet it's in all of us. R.C. Sproul Jr., he put it this way. He said, um, every idol, if you scratch it, is a mirror. We worship ourselves. Such is our depravity. But what we see in Acts chapter 12 is that pride is not left undealt with. There are consequences for our pride. And so what I want to do now is just come away from Acts chapter 12 and go to Daniel chapter 4. I want to look at the life of another man, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. This is the great king of Babylon and he's like myself just a moment ago. He's marveling at his own achievements. Listen to what he says. He says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And here's the response. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And that's precisely what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. It says that he was driven from among men, he ate grass like an ox, his body was wet with dew of heaven, and it even says that his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. This is the kind of humbling that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. 
as Proverbs puts it, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And if, if you're in Christ and you have any unrepentant, recalcitrant pride, in time it will probably result in the kind of fatherly discipline that we see here in Nebuchadnezzar. You see, sometimes, as sobering as it is to say, Christ might actually have to bring us low for a while until we learn who's really on the throne, and it's not us. You see, we can make the mistake. We, we can see Nebuchadnezzar here and think, oh, God's punishing him. This is condemnation. No, it's not. This is just fatherly discipline. You see, after these events took place, Nebuchadnezzar is actually restored. And when he's restored, listen to what he says. This is his testimony. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Can we, do, do we get that? This guy's just been humbled. He's been cast out of his own kingdom and he praises God for it. You see, there's actually something really joyful in knowing our limitation. There's actually something really joyful about when we actually get reset and we take ourselves off the throne and we realize that that throne belongs to God Almighty. There is a joyful thing that happens there. Herod, Nebuchadnezzar is really happy about it. But what about Herod? What kind, of, what kind of stuff's going on here with Herod? It's not quite the same, is it? Let's read verse 23 again. It says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. No restoration, no extolling and praise, instant judgment. An angel of the Lord struck him down. Now, Luke kind of gives us like a brief account here. It's just really over in one sentence, but our friend Josephus, the historian, uh, gives us a, a little bit more detail on it. What seemed to have happened is that in that moment, he gripped his stomach and he was just wincing in excruciating abdominal pain, so much so that his, uh, Josephus says he actually had to be carried out of the amphitheater. And for five days, he was writhing in pain on his bed until finally he died. Uh, what, you know, what was the, 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 the natural means through which God worked there? It, it may have been um, intestinal worms, intestinal worms, which can form a kind of tight ball in your stomach and it can cause uh, like an acute um, intestinal obstruction. So perhaps that's kind of the, the medical means through which God was enacting here. But what we see here is that this is actually the consequence for Herod's opposition to God and for his claim to be God. How are we doing with that? <laughs> I mean, some of us may not even have a category for what we just read. We're kind of going, I'm sorry, what, what Bible do you read? Do you read? Like, I mean, isn't, isn't God the guy who's slow to anger and merciful? And, and didn't he send Jesus so that if we repent, we can be saved? Absolutely true. Yes and amen. But having said all that, God is not a pushover. He's not a force to be reckoned with. Hebrews 10 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, God is love, but he is also holy. And as a product of his holiness, he hates sin and he has to punish it. You see, what we see here in the account of Herod is what the Bible calls the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God is not an attribute of God. Holiness is God's attribute. And because he is holy, that holiness manifests itself in wrath. So we can't go around saying God is wrath. That's not quite right. We say God is holy and he's 
His wrath manifests out of that holiness. Now, this is not a very popular doctrine. There's not a lot of people who are too comfortable to teach on the wrath of God. It's uh, D.A. Carson, my Bible teaching hero, says it this way. He says, The point that cannot be escaped is that God's wrath is not some minor and easily dismissed peripheral element to the Bible's plot line. His wrath is a function of His holiness as He confronts sin. But insofar as His holiness is an attribute of God and sin is the endemic condition of this world, this side of the fall, divine wrath cannot be ignored or evaded. It is not going too far to say that the Bible would not have a plot line at all if there were no wrath. Now, at this point, you might want to push back a little further and go, yeah, okay, wrath of God, I get it, but not for right now. I think that's something that happened back in Bible times. He was doing the whole wrath of God thing back then. But now, I, I think he's kind of moved on. He, he's, he's no longer angry the way he used to be. He doesn't conduct himself like that anymore, right? In the year before Alice and I got married, I lived with a family on the Gold Coast, uh, the Morgan family, Mike and Ella Morgan. They're some of Alice and I's um, really close friends now. And um, in their family, on Mike's side of the family, there is a long uh, generational uh, history of uh, men who have been pastors, right? So his brother's a pastor and his dad before him was a pastor and his dad before him. And I think it's about four generations of pastors in the Morgan family. So some of the stories that used to be told when I lived with him for that year were just incredible. Like, if you want a cure for cessationism, read the Bible and listen to the Morgan family. Some of the stories they will tell you about the Holy Spirit is incredible. But they have some more sobering stories as well. I can't remember which generation of pastor this was, but one of the Morgans was ministering in a church, preaching, uh, just doing a, a sermon from an English Bible, going about his usual routine. And someone stood up in the middle of the congregation and started making his way to the front, going, oh, you, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You, you, what are you doing? Cut that out. You, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I think he wanted to see something a little bit more miraculous than a sermon. And this guy was disturbing the entire service. And so uh, Mr. Morgan was basically saying, Sir, I, with respect, can you please stop that? Can you calm down? You're disturbing the service. But he kept going. And as he made his way to the front, he was struck down. And people rushed to his aid and they, they thought they might be able to revive him. Was it a heart attack? And the pastor knew. He said, with all due respect, don't, don't bother. Um, this man is gone. So does God still do that? Yeah, he does. Now, we need to clarify a few things here, don't we? What, what, what I'm not saying is that every time we see someone writhing with abdominal pain, you know, if they get a bit of appendicitis or something like that, we're not supposed to look at that and go, oh, that reminds me of Herod, must be the judgment of God. That's not what I'm saying here. But here's what I am saying. And this, this is a sobering reality that we come across here in Acts 12, is that sometimes, and my emphasis here is on sometimes, instead of waiting for the final judgment for God to bring about His wrath on the sinner, every now and then, God chooses to demonstrate His wrath in the moment with relatively small preview, anticipatory judgments that kind of foreshadow what's coming in the future. This is what he's been known to do. We saw it back in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. And when he does do this, when he, when he kind of gives us a, a preview judgment, like we see here with Herod, it's, it's not necessarily because the individual was guilty of a certain category of sin. 
And let me prove that to you by uh, reading Luke chapter 13. Now, if you have a Bible, Luke 13, uh, verses 1 through 5. This is Jesus. He's trying to uh, bring some clarity on some of the disasters that have been happening around the people of uh, Jerusalem at a particular time. This is what Jesus said to kind of clarify the events. He said, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate had then put them to death. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there's a bit of a tension here about how we interpret the death of Herod. On the one hand, it's not necessarily that Herod was guilty of a certain category of sin, as though he had like a top-of-the-shelf violation that God went, quick, he's over the threshold, press the wrath button, get Herod. It's not necessarily what's happening there. I mean, remember three chapters earlier, Saul was persecuting the church far more than Herod ever did. Herod's killed one person so far, James. How many deaths did Saul oversee? As we mentioned, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, their crime was withholding funds that belonged to the church. And they were struck down. But then you think about it, have you read medieval church history? Far worse things have been done with money in the name of God. (laughs) There are still people today trying to buy their salvation with money. (laughs) Where's the instant wrath on that one? So it's not necessarily that someone breaches a certain threshold of sin. I mean, at the end of the day, (laughs) it says here that Herod died because he did not give God the glory. You and I do that all the time. Where's our instant wrath? It's not there, is it? There's a um, very famous uh, rapper of the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. His name's Marshall Mathers. Uh, You might know him as Eminem. And uh, he was interviewed some time ago and said, Oh, uh, Marshall, do, do you think you're the greatest rapper that God's ever graced the earth with? And he just paused and went... I don't remember sending anyone. He made a claim to be God. Any instant wrath? Any eaten up with worms? No. So it's not necessarily that someone does a high top-of-the-shelf violation. But then having said all of that, on the other hand, Herod is the man who executed James. He was planning on doing the exact same thing to Peter and he's just professed to be God. So there is a sense in which we should read this account the same way we read about the death of Judas in Acts chapter 1. This is no doubt, here in Acts chapter 12, a sign of divine retribution. If if Luke were writing the, the epitaph on Herod's tomb, it would have said, Here layeth the man who opposed God and the spread of the gospel. I mean, we see it there in verse 24. It says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let me... um. Let me paraphrase verse 24 for you in the context of Herod. It's really Luke's way of saying, nice try, Herod. You, you, you thought you could inhibit the spread of the gospel by taking out James and then imprisoning, imprisoning Peter? You, you thought that would do it? No. The gospel will go to the nations. John Stott, he uh, summarizes chapter 12 nicely. He says, the chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. 
But at the end of the chapter, it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Do you see the twist that's happened from the beginning of Acts chapter 12 to the end of Acts chapter 12? The word of God will increase and it will multiply. So there's a tension here on how we view the judgment of Herod. So how does that relate to to us? Well, there's, there's something else we need to note from what we read in Luke 13. He's saying that in some sense, that Tower of Siloam that landed on some people was in some sense a judgment. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's saying, all right, the Tower may not have failed fallen on you but one day you are going to die we all will by some means and we will all face ultimate judgment therefore jesus says i implore you while you are still alive repent and as sobering as this text here is in acts chapter 12 as we see the wrath of god poured out on herod this text is a response an opportunity for response to repent because when we look at him we're we're just like him we're we're just as proud we're we're equally deserving of God's judgment yet here we all are with air in our lungs as we sung a moment ago not yet dead if you're alive today there's a sense in which that's God being merciful to you he is extending a period of time for you to turn to him before he does return that's mercy now you might go, oh, well, that, that doesn't seem right. How, how is he letting Saul get away with all that and then turning him into the Apostle Paul? And then how does Herod do one seemingly, you know, people have done worse things before and you're taking him out. Where's the balance of those things? There's a sense in which I don't know. God says he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. It is all to his glory. I don't know how he draws the lines, but I just know that he does. But if you're alive today, there is an opportunity for us all to repent. You see, the death of Herod serves as a frightening example of God's wrath, but it also reminds us of his incredible mercy. You see, the word of God that Luke says will uh, increase and multiply is the gospel. That is the word of God that Luke is talking about here. And it's only the gospel that makes forgiveness of sins possible. You see, the gospel is the message that despite our rebellion, I might have the band come and join me. Despite our rebellion, despite our idolatrous pride, despite our glory theft that we've been doing since the fall, despite the fact that we fail to recognize our creatureliness like all the time, Christ came to live the life of humble, joyful submission to the Father that you and I failed to live. And he also came to die a humiliating death where he not only demonstrated his love, but he absorbed the very wrath of God. You see, everyone in this room has got one of two options. You will either have the wrath of God come down on you, or you can repent and believe that the wrath of God came down on Jesus for you. Take your pick. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I implore you, repent. And what we also have in the gospel is that we see Jesus demonstrating the kind of humility that we all fail to show. But we see him worthy to receive the glory that you and I don't deserve. That's a marvelous thing. 
I want to finish by reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is 